This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Amelia is a British-Australian writer. She was born in Sydney and studied English literature and law at the University of New South Wales before working as a lawyer in Sydney and London. Uh, She's a graduate of Curtis Brown Creative three-month online novel writing course, which I have heard is fabulous. Yes, it's excellent. I'd recommend it. And was highly commended in that course in in 2021. Um, Her short fiction has been published in Australia and the UK. This is her novel. Um, It's called Waywood. Is this your first novel? Yes, it is. Yeah, wow, congratulations. Um, She weaves together the stories of three women across five centuries, exploring female resilience and the transformative power of the natural world. It's quite an unusual story that is so compelling. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you think so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think um, our readers are really enjoying it very much as well. Okay, so to me, you look like you haven't left school yet, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You're so young and here you are with two careers behind you, I guess, um, being a lawyer and now being a writer. Tell me where it all started and how you ended up in London. Oh, that's a great question. Um, So I guess we'd have to go back to before I was born um, because my dad is British. So he was born in Devon. um, And that's why I live here really because I have a British passport. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I'd always had this idea of living in London um, was what I wanted to do when I grew up, apart from becoming a writer. Um, and yeah, so in my early 20s, um, I got a transfer with the law firm I was working at. And so you you grew up in Sydney? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You went to school in Sydney, so all your formative years were there? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I always had in my head this idea that I would grow up and move to London. Um, I had, you know, been here on a holiday during childhood. Um, And, yeah, it just seemed like a really kind of exciting place and um, I loved all the history and all of that. So, yeah, that was always my plan. (laughs) Tell me about, so you left school. Did you, during school, were you like one, an avid reader probably? Was it writing was something you were thinking about? Definitely. I think, you know, I've always been a big reader for as long as I can remember. And I think like I'm a reader first before I'm a writer, like, like stories are just what I love. Um, And so I suppose another way of kind of escaping into a story I realized as I was growing up was to write your own. Um, And so, yeah, it was something that I'd always did in the background. So I would scribble little stories. I, I wrote um, this like half of a fantasy novel, which was terrible. 
practice, um, practice yeah, media. Exactly. That's what it's it all is. Practice. It's all practice. Yeah, yeah. Can I just? I'm going to say something here. I have interviewed so many writers. I think it's. I'll have to count them one day, but it must be over five. 400, five, close to 500, right? And half, I, I'm serious, if I did if I did a survey, I reckon half of them when they were growing up were positive they were going to be writers, you know. I mean, one author told me that she sent, when she was 12, she sent a letter to an agent or a publisher telling them that she was coming eventually, right? That's how confident she was of becoming a writer, right? So there's that. And then there's the other half, because you use the word dead, that think that that is so beyond me. I don't know that yeah. it's an occupation. I don't know if I'll ever get there. Yeah, I think, you know, it was always something that I sort of longed to do, but I, I'm quite a cautious person. And so I I was like, well, you know, you can't do this straight out of school. You need to have a contingency plan. You need to have a stable career. A real job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, I mean, I think because I do love words and I love, language and I guess I like to think I have a strong sense of justice the law did seem like an obvious choice um for my you know proper job (laughs) um and then I thought okay well maybe one day you know when I've had a bit of life experience then I'll have something to say um that people that will be worth you know that people want to read um and but you know I do think that it did make me a much better writer because when I was younger you know every sentence would have like five adjectives and adverbs and I think being a lawyer taught me to be really concise and sparing with my words and like every word like in a, in a piece of legislation because I did some work for the government so I was draft the UK government and we had to draft legislation and every word is so crucial it needs to kind of earn its place and so I sort of applied that principle to writing fiction. I think it did. I think I did improve. Yeah, so, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, and I also see that. I think you're right. Yeah, it's interesting. Did you like being a lawyer? Did you like working in the law? Yeah, no, I did. Um, I think, you know, I've had a few different legal jobs and that, I mean, obviously there's a commonality there, but they can be so different. And so I have, I've had some jobs I've liked more than others. Um, But I think I enjoyed the intellectual challenge of it. And I think, you know, when you're problem solving, giving advice as a lawyer, there is an element of creativity there. Like you can kind of look for a new answer, a new way of answering the question you've been asked. Um, And then I think I, like, I did really enjoy the actual writing part of it. I enjoyed writing out my advice and, making sure my emails were perfect. Um, So, yeah, I did enjoy it, but I think it's not like the thing that I love in the way that I love writing where Mm. I think if I I notice that if I have a day where I don't write, I feel I'm like really grumpy. (laughs) (laughs) That's like me with swimming. If I don't swim or if I don't bake, I'm grumpy. Okay, tell me, so when was it that you started to give yourself permission to think about writing? Oh, well, this is a kind of long story. Um, with like amazing- a long story um, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good, but it might have some unexpected turns. So, you know, I was in my mid-20s working as a lawyer, living in London, kind of doing that thing that like young Australians tend to do. <laughs> um, and although I didn't hang out in Clapham, so, you know, not like other Australians. <laughs> Can I tell you, Amelia, <laughs> I did this. Right. 
<laughs> I did the same. I did the same. Yeah. I went and worked at Dylan's at a big store that's not there anymore when you had the two-year visa. Um, and it was such a great experience. I loved it, you know. Um, yeah, so that's a really cool. great agreement that both governments have, that you can actually ha- do that and have that opportunity. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so anyhow, I was uh, working as a lawyer and sort of thought that my life was like sorted I guess and this dream of being a writer I kind of had pushed to the back of my mind but then something kind of really like life-shattering happened to me health-wise um and so it is the kind of cliche if you have a near-death experience and it changes your outlook on life but basically when I was 26 I had a stroke um which was yeah obviously partially unexpected Mm. because you know I think I didn't really know what a stroke was. I thought it was anyway something that only happened to older people. So it was the last thing I ever thought would happen to me. Um, And it was interesting because it really made me sort of place a new value on uh, reading and on how important that sort of being able to escape into words is to me because um, I lost some of my vision so um, where were you when the stroke yeah. happened and how well, sorry. <laughs> I, I need you to segue into that and then come back yeah sure um so basically I had been at a house party um that my friend had hosted and it was the next day um and you know everyone was a little bit hungover but nothing out of the ordinary we're all kind of hanging out together me and some other girlfriends in London in London yes yeah Um, And, yeah, then I just was suddenly hit with these very strange symptoms like terrible headache, loss of vision on the right side and sort of exorcist-style projectile vomiting. Um, And, yeah, I think you sort of know when something like that's happening. You kind of know when something's really wrong. And I I thought because I didn't really understand what a stroke was, I think I thought it was like an aneurysm, like something had, like, popped inside my head. but yeah, it turned out to be a stroke, which, yeah. yeah and I think, wow. yeah, so I feel, I do feel like, even though obviously it really sucked, um, I think I was very lucky because the part of the brain that was impacted was the um, occipital lobe, which impacts your, so that is what interprets your eyesight for you. Um, and so I have got some blind spots still now, but it's, you know, I can function pretty well, but um, it was so close to like other parts of the brain that affect memory and communication. It's just, yeah. you know, I, it's like a millimeter or less. That means that I can, you know, um, talk and write as I do now. So how yeah, can, were you out? Like, you know, not working or not being able to function? Um, so I took three months off work, which was probably not long enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but I had like a few weeks where I couldn't really read because I had really bad headaches. And I found, you know, even though like I definitely was able to like read the words on the page because of these new blind spots, it was kind of, it was quite disorienting and I had to sort of get used to it and I needed the pain to kind of dissipate. Um, So it was just podcasts for the first few weeks really, um, which was really strange because. I, like it was something that I really took for granted, being able to read. Yeah. yeah. I'm really sorry to hear that. Wow. But I am hearing more and more young people suffering strokes. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think 
it's often hard when a young person has a stroke to really pinpoint the exact cause. Um, and I didn't, you know, I wasn't like a smoker. I've never smoked. I wasn't a big drinker mm. and I was quite healthy. So it was very out of the blue, but mm. yeah, anyway. Yeah. So, anyway, but it's on your path to writing. Exactly. And funnily enough, I did actually decide I was going to write a funny stroke memoir about like being, you know, living in London and like I've had a stroke and how do I move on with my life and how do I date and all that stuff that I kind of just ran out of jokes really quickly. Yeah. So it's just not that funny to have a stroke, it turns out. Um, yeah. But, you know, it did kind of spark something because suddenly I was writing all this very bad, but writing all this poetry and I wrote like so many short stories I tried to write one like one a month or for a while um and I think although I was obviously still working as a lawyer it did just make me think this is something that I want to do like I should try I should try I should try to make it happen hey I'm Ryan Reynolds recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. Was there any pressure, like, did you consider coming back to Sydney when you had the stroke? Like, was it, uh, you know, yeah. life-changing in terms of decisions? Because that's massive. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I did think about it. I mean, also because I'd had, like, some other things in my personal life happen um, around that time. Um, and I did sort of think, like, oh, you know, this dream I've had of living in London, is is it all falling apart? Um but I'm quite a stubborn person and I think I just felt like I don't want to go home with my tail between my legs, you know, like mm. I feel I felt as though there was a reason why I wanted to live here. And I think also, you know, because I do have the passport and I'm not on the two-year visa, you know, I can stay for as long as I like. Um, and, yeah, I just really strongly felt that I just didn't want to give up on London and of like the dream I, I'd had of, of living here and, yeah. <laughs> but I think my family might have preferred me to go home. Oh, um, yeah, I can imagine yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now you're writing short stories and bad yes. poetry, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and then I had a job um, sort of in the public sector working for the government but still as a lawyer. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to 2020 and the pandemic hit, um, and I was still working as a lawyer, working remotely for the government. And my role was quite, you know, I probably shouldn't talk about that too much, but it was quite, it was quite heavily impacted by the pandemic. So I was very busy. Um, but I was living with some friends in Cumbria at the time. Um, and 
I think I had this sense of I really wanted to escape from the pandemic. And in mm. a sense, I had escaped because, you know, I was in a safe place away from lots of people and this kind of really beautiful, like natural surroundings. But it was still really frightening, like, you know, for everyone around the world. No and, one knew. We didn't yeah, know. We anything. had no idea. And, you know, I didn't know if I was going to see my family again. Like, Mm-hmm. It was awful. And and it was something we could never have imagined. You no. could never have written about it. No, well, actually, it's funny because I know an author who she did write about a book about a pandemic called The End of Men by Christina Swaney Bard, which is a great book, it came out a couple of years ago. But she wrote it before the pandemic. But anyway, that's amazing. But, yes, I could never have imagined it personally. And I just had no idea, like, how to get through it. And then I just started, well, you know, I was living in Cumbria, as I said, which is really beautiful. And like, I did kind of have that sense of inspiration from the, from the landscape. But then I also was kind of interested in like the local history. Um, And so I learned about the Pendle witch trials, which took place in Lancaster. So not too far from where I was. And um, so this is going back to 1612. And then, you know, I think one of the other things that really upset me about the pandemic, apart from, you know, how horrible the whole thing was, was with lockdown and like women being in, you know, put in lockdown with their abusers, because I'm sure it was similar in Australia, but in the UK, we heard like lots of reports in the media about, you know, increased calls to domestic violence helplines. And Mm. like, we actually know now that I think it was something like, I don't know, six like a 6% increase in England and Wales mm. for that year, although I'm not sure that, I think that figure's right, but I might be wrong. But any in any case, mm. there was this huge uptick in um, reports of domestic violence. And I think because I had been reading about the witch trials and then I was hearing about increasing domestic violence, I just, I don't know, I felt like there was a connection between the two things. And mm. so that that is what I wanted to explore. So I had this idea in my head of, a woman in the modern day kind of escaping an abusive situation and going to Cumbria, finding this old cottage with this kind of legacy of witchcraft and power. Um, and then, yeah, then I just started writing. Yeah. When did you do your course with Curtis Brown? So I did that when I, I'd, I'd done a few drafts by then. Yeah. Um, so I did that later in 20, 2020, by which stage... I think I'd done five drafts or something of the book. Um, But it was such a wonderful thing to do because although it was online and obviously it was the pandemic, it was just great to have feedback like from other, Mm. from other writers who are all very talented as well. And from my tutor who is brilliant, Susanna Dunn, who's, she's just amazing. Um, Because I think, you know, when you're in your, when you're writing, you're in your own world, you really need to show other people Mm. what you've written because like you're writing something that's it's meant to be read you know um look I think Amelia I mean with everybody I've spoken to with so many authors that has been a really valuable experience not I mean not all of them have um, participated in a writing course but they've belonged to groups or clubs or other writers where you know I know two writers um in Australia where they just uh, they're just together in a way that they're friends, but they're writing friends and they're both very successful writers, but they send each other everything. So there needs to be a sharing process, doesn't there? Yeah, there, def- there definitely does because, you know, when I think 
when you're trying to construct something and you know where all the seams are, you, like you have no way of knowing what the reader thinks. It's so hard to put yourself in the shoes of the reader when you know what's coming. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I found that really valuable. Um, and I think, you know, so I, I've got a couple of friends who I'm really close with who are also authors. And so we do mm. try and share things with each other, especially if we're stuck on something. So it's like, I guess a lesson I'm trying to carry through. What's mm. um, it challenging? <laughs> Sorry. Reads, go- my mom reads everything and she's great. She gives really good feedback. Well, that's what you want. And yeah. um, I, I guess with mums too, that they won't beat around the bush, that's for sure. No, exactly. Not Australian mums anyway. <laughs> um, your transition from writing short stories to fiction, did you find yeah. that challenging? Because that is quite different, isn't it? Yeah, so I was worried. I didn't know if I had the stamina mm. to actually write a whole novel because I just thought, oh, my God, 90,000 words, like I can't do that. Yeah. I'll just what if I just give up? You know, what if I just stop? Because I'd, I'd tried to write longer things in the past and, you know, I'd write like the first chapter and just wouldn't really go anywhere. But I think because what how what happened was I, I said to myself, I'm going to write, you know, a thousand words every day before work and just till it's finished. You know, of course, it wasn't finished. It was just the first draft. But I think kind of breaking it down into like, segments that felt manageable but also staying with it every day really helped and I think it got to the point where you know I wanted to find out what happened next as well like I became and I tried I think it's so important to write something that you'd want to read that that was the thing that really helped me yeah. with this so you were you were aimed for a thousand words a day before yes. work yes. <laughs> I mean some writers just write that in a day without work well, that's what it's like now because now I'm, it's so funny because now I'm writing full time and, you know, I'm very lucky to be able to do that. But it's interesting how your product productivity changes. Um, and I think, you know, before when I was writing this in the pandemic, I'd just bash out a thousand words in like an hour or something and then I'd just log on to my proper job. Um, and now it might take me like three hours and I sit there and I'm like, oh, okay, well, this sentence could be better or, you know, so it can actually help. It can help if it's not your whole life, I think. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the story and to talk about witchcraft because that's, it's, it's a thread and it's quite rich and it's, you know, obviously right through the novel. Uh, tell me your interests there. Where did that come from? Well, I think it's something I've probably always been interested in, like on at some level, just the idea of magic. Because I guess, you know, there's the idea of magic and there's witchcraft and witch trials and they're connected, but they're not necessarily mm. like the same. They don't have to be the same thing. Because, um, you know, and I think I think like a lot of people my age, like I really loved um, Harry Potter when I was a child and like that sense of a magical world you could escape into or the idea that someone who looks quite ordinary um, or maybe who appears weak might have this untapped power. I think that really spoke to me. Um, and then also in high school, I remember so clearly studying the crucible um, and the sense that the witch trials, which is just such an awful part of our history that I think it's hard to explain even now, but just this idea that they can be used as a metaphor to explore like contemporary events. Um, so I think that's why I found them 
found magic and witchcraft really interesting. And then I'd always been interested in feminist stories and I'm like a really passionate feminist and um it just seemed like a way of kind of tying all these things together and I thought well witchcraft and witch trials it's just still relevant today unfortunately Mm -hmm. so that's kind of how I how I came to it Mm. so there's a lot of depth and a lot of research in your work because it's not just sitting at a computer writing a thousand words how do you separate that the research from the writing or do you that's a really good question because I think everyone has a different approach you know some people spend years researching and other people research as they go um and I think everyone's different so for me you know I did a bit of reading beforehand but most of it I I did while I was writing Uh um yeah because I think the problem with research is that it can sort of become a procrastination well it can become a totally other job can't it well exactly exactly and um yeah it's just it's interesting how different people have a different approach but I think and there's just so much, like, where do you draw the line? And you kind of have to have a balance though, because as you're writing the story, you kind of know, you know what you need to find out, but also the research can make you think of like new ideas for the plot that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Um, So I think there was a little bit of both. And, you know, there are lots of great books about the English witch trials that that I read. Um, And then I also read, and this was really strange, but so I read the um, sort of pamphlet that was published in 1613 by a law clerk called Thomas Potts that was actually about the Pendle Witch Trial. So it was meant to be like an accurate recording. Um, and that was really helpful to kind of understand, firstly, like the language used in trials of the time and then also just pe- like the prejudices about witchcraft and the ideas about familiars and the mark, like the devil's mark and that sort of thing. And I just remember, th- I just thought it was just, it's just so strange because there were, there were kind of these rules of, not really rules of evidence as we would think of them today, but, you know, they were still having a trial trying to determine if there were truth, if there was a truth in these allegations. And it's so hard for us to wrap our heads around that now, I think, mm. like with something that to us seems kind of outlandish, like this idea of witchcraft, but yeah, it's just that was as real to them as, you know, the idea that of, of murder is a crime. You know, they're often linked. So, yes. Okay, so you had this book, um, and I guess that's one thing. And I guess you had your connection with Curtis Brown, um, because I just want to know what was the path to publishing. How? Yeah, that's because that's you know another challenge, as you know. Yes. So. I think I was very lucky in that a number of things kind of fell into place um, for me. Um, So the first one was that, so I had done the, I did the Curtis Brown creative course. And what's great about that course is that you do get exposure to agents at Curtis Brown. Um, So they send uh, a kind of, um, you know, like a taster of your work at the end of the course to all the agents. Um, So there was that. Uh, but also I entered a competition, the Caledonia Novel Award, um, and I would really recommend, like, that any writer, aspiring novelists enter competitions because it's a great way to kind of get. I hear that all the time, yeah. Amelia. Yeah, it's it yeah. really is a path to publishing, definitely. Just keep definitely. entering competitions. 
Definitely. And it's, you know, it's also about timing and when you're ready, mm-hmm. because I had entered some earlier with the draft and, you know, nothing happened because it, it, it wasn't polished enough. But, you know, I was really lucky in this competition that I did get shortlisted and I ended up being highly commended. And so it was that that kind of enables me to touch base with Curtis Brown and say, this has happened. And then they um, put me in touch. They were like, we'll put you in touch with one of our agents. Like, who would you like to read your manuscript? And so because I really wanted um, Felicity Blunt, who's my agent, well, I didn't actually, th- I didn't think that she would ever make me an offer. So I was like, what about Felicity? And then, yeah, it was amazing. Like she read the whole draft and she offered me representation. It was just like, the best day ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, there was still a lot of work to be done after that. Well, um, you still have to get a publishing contract. That's just well, step that, step one. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and I think you know, different agents work differently. Um, Felicity, she's really editorial. Um, so we did quite a lot of, like, intense editing together on the book for a few months. Um, and then she sent it out to publishers. Um and then I was very happy to get an offer from Barra Press with HarperCollins. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was very surreal. Still very. <laughs> well, congratulations. I'm so happy for you. Um, I'm glad to see that you're well. Um, and have you been to Sydney since post-pandemic? You have to see family? Yes. I went, I went last year and I'm going to be there in April for some weddings and things. So, yeah, it'll be great to see it like in Australia I've got like lots of lovely um family members and friends sending me pictures of like the book and like dimmicks and stuff and that is just really cool (laughs) it's really cool congratulations Thank thank you for your time today thank you so much thank you for having me If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.